Tonight, Airbnb has been a reliable source of income for New Yorkers looking to rent out their homes while choosing their own tenants and terms. But a new crackdown on short-term rentals may force many hosts out of business. Then an inspirational story of giving back takes us from corporate America to Rikers Island, where a retired executive is using his experience running companies to give young people the tools to get out and stay out of jail. Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. Since its inception, Airbnb has become an increasingly popular option for tourists visiting New York City. In 2022 alone, short-term rental listings across the city, like Airbnb and Verbo, generated $85 million in revenue. While visitors have enjoyed the lower prices and larger spaces that short-term rentals can offer, some residents have blamed these spaces for issues like noise, trash, and even skyrocketing rents. In response, the city has passed a new law that severely limits the number of short-term rentals by requiring rental hosts to register with the city and by restricting the number of guests that can stay in these units. Will the new restrictions reverse rising rental prices, and do they constitute a de facto ban on business as Airbnb claims? Joining us now to answer these and other questions are Amanda Hoover, a reporter who has been covering this issue for Wired, and Marjorie Moore Roberts, a Brooklyn resident who in the past has rented out her home on Airbnb. Welcome both of you. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank, Thank you for having me. So Amanda, Let's start with you. Break it down for us, please. What exactly um, has the city changed with these new regulations and restrictions? Yeah, so this is a registration law. Um, Short-term rental hosts, that's for people that want to rent out places for less than 30 days, now have to register with the city. But they'll only be approved if they are going to be present in the home at the time of the short-term stay and rent it out to to people. So effectively, this is not the way that many people stay in Airbnbs or other short-term rentals. Many people rent the whole apartment, come with their whole family. Um, that Those rentals will no longer be allowed to be registered and effectively have been like booted from the Airbnb platform. Now, Marjane, as I mentioned, representatives of, of uh, Airbnb have said that these regulations amount to, quote, a de facto ban on business in New York City. Do you agree? Are they uh, pushing you out of this uh, short-term rental business, you and your fellow hosts? Effectively, yes. Um, I think that, you know, for, for several years, um, you know, particularly one and two family homeowners like myself, you know, we've been able to rely on a secondary stream of income using a short-term rental. And, you know, the majority of our business is from families 
who are traveling often abroad, um, who want a little bit more space and, and more room and more amenities than, than a lot of hotels uh, can provide, especially at, a, at an affordable level. So given that there are only two people who can stay there, given that they want you in the unit uh, while your guests are there, I agree it is a de facto ban. Very few people will be comfortable with those types of, of, uh, of regulations. So how is this affecting you economically? What kind of hit are you taking? I, you know, I think I think it varies from uh, family to family. For us, you know, we bought a, a two-family home with the intention of creating a secondary income stream for ourselves. Um, you know, New York City is one of the most expensive cities in the world. And, you know, it takes a lot, in some cases, a lifetime to save to buy your home. And when we bought this home, we bought it with uh, the intention of being able to have the flexibility and the autonomy to use the second unit as we saw fit. And that included short-term rentals, um, you know, but it also includes other things that, you know, when I consult, it's my space for my office, you know, when my daughter has sleepovers, it's space for her friends. And so it absolutely has taken not only a financial hit, but also a quality of life hit for us. Yeah, Yeah, you know, Amanda, as I said in the introduction, uh, among the reasons the city lawmakers had given for deciding to go uh, after short-term rentals were uh, that rentals were causing noise, trash and danger. How did they determine that? By complaints to their offices? By uh, documented complaints to 311? Um, how exactly? This is, I mean, this is a common refrain we see around the world when it comes to short-term rentals. There have been many shootings that have happened at short-term rentals across the United States. Um, complaints around the world about noise, parties, these have become major places for bachelor and bachelorette parties to stay. Uh, there are some that are really quasi hotels where there's very little personal touch from a host. So some of these places have really frustrated neighbors um, for all the ways that New York received these complaints. I'm not really sure. I know that they've gotten them in a number of ways. Um, and it's not just New York City. This is a yeah. an issue that has happened across the board. Uh, I mean, I mean, um, um... Marjane, did you did you ever get any complaints uh, about about noise or or trash or or danger from your guests? Absolutely not. And you know, listen, I I don't uh, you know necessarily disagree with some of those scenarios. That some of those scenarios have happened across the world, across across the country. You know, what I would offer is that you know the the ecosystem of short term rentals are is very complex. Um, there's a variety of different players in that ecosystem. Some of them are professional landlords. Some of them are huge corporations. Some of them are, you know, set it and forget it. You know, that is not the scenario for myself and other one and two family homeowners um, who are generally live in the unit, in, in the building mm-hmm. yeah. that they're renting their unit in. So while some of those scenarios uh, may be happening in other places, I think the regulation sort of throws out the baby with the bathwater. And what we're trying to create is a scenario where we can get an exemption for owner-occupied one and two-family homes because we are generally there. We're not disrupting um, sort of the floor of an apartment building. We're not giving out keys that compromise security for other people. We are just trying to maintain autonomy for our home. Many people in my situation are just trying to make you know ends meet, if you will, or just have the freedom to use the unit as they see fit as an owner of the home. Yeah. So, Amanda, also, as I said in the introduction, the larger uh, complaint or the larger claim is that these short-term rentals are are driving or are part of the reasons why rents are rising so high in New York City.
But Alicia Glenn, who was deputy mayor for housing under Mayor de Blasio, um, has said that she never saw any data showing that short-term rentals were affecting the housing prices in a significant way. Is there any hard evidence showing that short-term rentals have been driving this increase in rents, this shortage, shortage in housing and increase in rents? It's it's more, I think, a piece of this bigger puzzle or alleged to be a piece of this bigger puzzle. You know, we've seen the number of short-term rentals on Airbnb since enforcement of this took effect in early September drop from about in 22,000 to somewhere closer to 3,000. So in the scheme of an 8 million person city, you know, 18,000, 19,000 apartments might not make a big dent. Um, where you see this more, if you really look at the map of where some of these rentals are, is that they have moved further out of central, like downtown Manhattan and Midtown, um, and more into more residential neighborhoods where you didn't typically have tourists. So there could be some more impact in some of those areas, but it's still like when you look at the city at large, um, I don't think that this is something that can, you know, overnight open up a lot more um, residences for people. Right. Although in some neighborhoods, it could have a bigger impact. Well, you know, as you know, Amanda, uh, there are those who argue, and I remember hearing this a lot a few years ago, uh, that the main motivation for the law isn't really about noise or trash or danger or even about rising prices, but rather about the large clout that the hotel industry and that the hotel unions have and that they just simply want to eliminate or restrict their competition. Uh, is there anything to that? That, that's certainly an argument that I've heard a lot. Um, what we see, though, with this is that New York is taking a really strict stance in terms of coming into regulations on short-term rentals, but it's not alone. There's so many other cities that have enacted registration programs that have limited the, the amount of nights that people can list whole apartments on short-term rental platforms. So it's that that's certainly an argument and there's experts who have said that this could cause hotel prices to rise and demand to increase um the validity to that i'm not really sure but it's it's obviously regulation for short-term rentals is a trend that we're seeing what do you think marjane what do you think marjane have you seen do you suspect that maybe the hotel uh industry lobby has something to do with this I think this is a very, very complex issue. And I think that that is absolutely an input into it. I think a lot of issues are getting conflated and the law, again, has has sort of thrown an axe or, or used an axe to solve a problem where they should have used a scalpel. Yeah, yeah. I think there are certainly people who have exploited the law companies. You know, people have dozens to hundreds of listings. You know, there's room for that to be um, examined and perhaps regulated. But for folks like myself, one and two family homeowners, that's not what we're doing. We're not contributing to the problems that the law purports to want to solve. And so, you know, what we're asking for is, is a look at the law that looks at the different constituencies and applies regulations appropriate yeah. for the contribution to the problem. Yeah. Right now, I think that there is an opportunity for hotels to capitalize on it, because if the numbers that Amanda offers are right, going from 22,000 to only 3,000 listings, where are those people going to go? Yeah. You know, there has to be a bigger picture looking at the impact on, on tourism overall. And I don't think everybody's going to go to a hotel. It just yeah. doesn't make sense. Well, well, on that, first of all, I mean, I, I actually, I was telling the director that for the last, I don't know, nine years or so, friends that have come to New York have all stayed in Airbnbs. They haven't stayed in in uh, um, in hotels. But to that point, Amanda, Alicia Glenn, again, the former deputy mayor of housing, 
um, uh, said, quote, open um, that the Airbnbs have opened up travel to hundreds of thousands of people who never would have had the opportunity to come to New York. Is the new law likely to cause a big hit on, on the tourist industry? I mean, as I said in the introduction, $85 million just last year alone for, for, for these short-term rentals. It ain't beanbag, even for New York City, right? It'll be really interesting to see what happens after December, I think, especially because right now, Airbnb in particular did not cancel existing reservations through December 1st. Now that puts the holidays are coming up, a big tourism time in New York City when people come. We don't know if how people will be affected if you know they won't be able to find hotels or they just won't be able to afford them who want to come for the holidays. So that's definitely a place to watch when we might really see a bigger shift. Because right now, there are still people that maybe booked their trips over the summer that can come and stay in their Airbnb, even if it's not fully compliant with the new law under you know Airbnb's policies. And enforcement by the city is ramping up, but a, you know a bit slow right now, it seems. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. There's already some people listing short-term rentals on Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, you know, other places where they are still unregistered but these are not booking platforms and it's a bit easier to fly under the radar wow marginet as as amanda has written uh i got this from one of her articles um at one point berlin um did some of these restrictions similar to ours but they rescinded it in 2018. if the uh if the reasonable uh, changes to the law that you're calling for don't happen are you hoping that maybe these laws uh will be rescinded or do you think that's beyond the, the possibility well again i think the opportunity is for nuance i think to the extent that there are people exploiting uh the short-term market i think that needs to be looked at and i think it can be managed i think the city has the ability to consider uh, a different set of circumstances or exemptions you know, for one and two family homeowners who don't have more than, I don't know, call it five listings. And that's what, you know, we're organizing around. We're, you know, part of an organization okay. called Roar, where we're trying to get the city to just get back to the table and have more conversations with us. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it there because our time is up. Uh, thank you so much. This has been a very interesting conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Far too often, former criminal offenders wind up back behind bars, in part because they're not given the proper training or resources to turn their lives around. Mark Goldsmith has been working to change that with his organization called Getting Out, Staying Out, a nonprofit that helps young men incarcerated on Rikers Island re-enter society by providing them with education and employment opportunities, skills training, and emotional well-being resources. Mark's not always been focused on this mission, though he spent most of his career as a successful executive in the cosmetics industry before pivoting to a career of service. He wrote about this transition in his book titled From Madison Avenue to Rikers Island, The Making of a Social Entrepreneur, in which he encourages others who spent their careers working in commercial industries that it's never too late to take up a life of service. Joining us now as part of our Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America is author and founder of Getting Out, Staying Out, Mark Goldsmith. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure having you here. Thank you, Jack, and you have a wonderful invitation. I'd like to record exactly what you said. Yeah, you you'll be able you'll be able to to watch that and and have that yourself. And so um, the the book is fascinating, 
And for some context, let's start here with the Madison Avenue part of your career. Give us a sense of what you did for all these years. Actually, I was in the cosmetic business for over 35 years. I started with Cody that had just been bought by Pfizer. Then I went to Revlon. Then I helped. You remember the Brute brand men's cologne? Sure. Remember I Brute. Right. The green bottle, wasn't it? The green bottle? Exactly. The then I moved to a Japanese company, Shiseido. Uh, I ran Yves Saint Laurent's fragrance business for a while and ended up running Almay Hypoallergenic Cosmetics. Uh, uh, basically a 35-year career. And an, an exceptional career, I should mention. And the book talks about then from Madison Avenue, that successful career, to Rikers Island. So explain to us how you actually and why you got to Rikers Island and then the impact it had on you. I can thank my wife, Dr. Arlene Goldsmith, PhD social worker, who's in the world of not-for-profit, founded an organization called New Alternatives for Children. She suggested to me that I do something called principle for the day. And I said, well, what's that? She said, she said, well, you're great with kids. You go into the New York City school system and you talk to young people about their future. I said, that's great. So I went down to principle for the day and I asked for the toughest school in New York. I said, don't send me to a fancy school like my kids went. Well, they did. They sent me to Rikers Island and I couldn't believe it. And I walked into Rikers Island was introduced into a GED program run by a woman named Gloria Ortiz. She had started something called the Horizon Academy on Rikers Island. And there were 25 young men. And I said, well, what, what am I going to talk to these young men about? I figured I'd start with Kobe Bryant. So they figure the white dude he does know something. So we yeah. talked sports for a while. And then I asked them what they wanted to do with the rest of their lives when they got out. And they didn't have a clue. And so I asked them, do any of you guys know how to sell? Oh, we know how to sell. I said, well, you know, in the world of business, that's called being a salesman and you get paid a commission and you don't go to jail for it. And they said, well, that's cool. I said, by the way, who keeps the money? They said, well, this guy over here. I said, that's called finance. He can be the finance guy. I said, and who spreads the word where you can get these drugs? Said, oh, that guy there. He said, that's the advertising guy. And what I basically did was place them all in a corporate environment and talk to them about what it might be like. The correction officers came up to me and said, you know what? We've never seen them listen to a white guy for two hours. What did you tell them? And I said, I didn't tell them anything. I asked them and I got them to talk about themselves. They were extremely articulate, extremely intelligent. And I just had the best time and I went back to work. So one year later, I go back. Yeah, let me let me let me ask you that, that because because you, you, it was a fascinating conversation where you were able to get them to relate to skills that that had to do with unfortunately their illicit conduct, oh, but showed how those skills could work out in the real world, and obviously you got their attention. So now, how do you start officially this program? The last thing in the world, Jack, that I had an idea is that I would start a not for profit. So I go back. And I'm starting to go once a week. And turns out one of the guys gets out. I said, what, what am I going to do now? So I set myself up at Starbucks. I think it was at 39th and Madison. And I saw this young man, John Gonzalez. And we started to talk about what he might like to do. And then another guy got out. Because for the most part, young men who, uh, anyone who goes to Rikers Island and gets convicted is going, the vernacular is called up top. It means mm -hmm. you're going to an upstate prison. Right. And when these guys go up top, 
I eventually ended up being their correspondent. I wrote to them, kept them interested. In fact, I there's a young man up there I've known for 20 years, and we still talk. But that's basically what happened. And then my wife said to me, why don't you start a not-for-profit? Well, no. she's the master of all that. So right. it was her idea that I even start getting out and staying out. And I opened it up. Uh, I had to get an office. I couldn't get an office because people didn't want to rent to a guy who was having formerly incarcerated people in their building. The answer to that was very simple, Jack, do a storefront. So I went up to Harlem on 116th Street and I started walking from door to door and I found an office on 116th Street where they could walk right in from the street. They didn't have to go through a lobby. And right. they built, the program has now since expanded into several offices in Harlem. So that Let's was talk basically... About, let me, yeah. So let, let me ask, because I've got a lot I want to get in here in this conversation. So a, a fascinating beginning to this. Now, let's jump ahead a little bit. What sort of services now and skills training are you, as the, are the, is the organization able to provide to these people? Well, you, you mentioned it. There were the, it's called the three E's, education, employment, and the single most important one, emotional well-being. Once again, my wife stepped in and said, only hire social workers with a master's degree. If they can't deal with the emotions and the thoughts of these young men, you're going to fail. So from day one, we only hired social workers with a master's degree who could do a, a, a form of therapy. And then we also had a, a psychiatrist consultant. But getting back to the employment and education, the Department of Education, because I had done such a good job on Rikers, agreed to have a new GED facility in my offices. So we actually have a GED facility where the young men can get their GED and hopefully go on to college on site, run by the New York City. It's called District 79, which is the alternative school district of New York City. When it, come to, it came to employment, that was my me. And so I set up a job readiness curriculum that they had to go through. It was two weeks of intensive looking into every aspect of employment, starting with the fact that I convinced them if they came in early, if they left late, and if they stayed off their cell phones, they'd probably get promoted, which is exactly <laughs> what happened to them. And then I got involved with various corporations who were willing to hire these young men. But I think the fact that they could succeed in the corporate world just by working hard yeah. and by paying attention, that was the employment end. And, and I, I was I was fascinated by your attention to detail for them. Things such as look the person in the eye when you're talking with them. The notion that you said, stay off of, of your cell phone. You went through mock job interviews with them, which are all essential. Yeah, let me, let, yeah, Mark, let me one, ask one thing, and then I'm going to come back to, to, to the building of the program. But I want to make sure we get this in. Look, we, we tend to look at numbers, statistics, as an indicator of success. And, and I found yours to be remarkable. So I, one I'm going to toss out, and then I'll ask you the other. One says that less than 15% of the people who go through your program go back to jail. And that compares to something in the range of 65%. Exactly. Of others who don't do that. Were you surprised by that number? 
was I surprised? Well, having never never experienced either one of them, yeah. uh, outside of the fact that I will tell you a quick story, that I'm from Johnstown, Pennsylvania originally, and before I got out of the Navy and I went home and had a party and had unfortunately too much to drink, ended up hitting a cop car and ending up in jail mm -hmm. where my father had to come down and bail me out. Had I been of color in New York City and done what I did, I yeah. would have been back on Rikers Island. Yeah, you would have been there without any opportunity. And as we know, we've put, reported on this before, the vast majority of people who are there are there not yet having been convicted of crimes, but waiting on their cases. That's another conversation. Got two quick questions for you before we go. One is to illustrate, again, the breadth of the success of this program. We talked about the numbers. But just tell us, what's the difference in cost for a year of somebody in Rikers Island as opposed to what you do? Great question. Hundreds of thousands of dollars to house one individual at Rikers Island. And by the way, I should add that GOSO is now also taking young women into the program. Oh, excellent. We've actually gotten calls right. in East Harlem right. of young women who are there. So the right. idea is it's hundreds of thousands of dollars versus our cost, yep. $15,000 per guy per year. Just it's, again, if you're if you're a numbers person, all you have to do is look at those numbers, look at the success rates that I mentioned before to get a sense of how how very impactful this program has been. Last thing for you, Mark, we could talk forever, but unfortunately, the tyranny of time here. Last thing is somebody's watching this and say, what a worthwhile program this is. How can I support it? What's the answer? OK, Take, it's a contact go. So so the website is GLSO nyc.org that's g-o-s-o-n-y-c.org volunteering you can volunteer at goso you can be a coach at goso these young people and i'll tell you the single most important thing about volunteering which i found out is you get more out of it than the people yeah. you're helping. Isn't that interesting? And you hear so many people say that. But and, so I, and I know you're saying that about you, but I'm just going to tag it with the fact that there are an awful lot of young people out there that are getting a great deal for their lives based upon well, you. So that's Mark, why, that's yep. why I wrote the book, so that yeah. so many people are retiring. What are they going to do? Right. Well, we have something now. Let them to go, go so, and that'll help. Hey, well, Mark, I, again, I, I got to run, but, okay. but just... Fabulous work by you. Congratulations on the success and the impact you're having on these young people's lives. And good luck to you in the future. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Jack, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. All right, it. You, you take care. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.